Welcome to Redemption Parker. My name is Mark. It is my privilege to open up God's Word with you this morning in the book of Romans as we continue in our series. We're in Romans chapter 11, so if you have your Bible, uh, turn there, turn it on, or use your scripture guide that we gave out earlier in the series uh, to Romans chapter 11. While you're turning there, I have a question. Who here has never Googled their name? You've never Googled yourself? Is that like, this is, you've never thought about this? So we have two people, anyone else over here? You've never Googled your name? Oh, you never Googled your, okay. So the vast majority of us have Googled our, our names. Anyone here find anything uh, interesting or surprising? Like, oh man, I put that on the internet back then. Uh, or or uh, someone put something about you on the internet. Any, anyone uh, maybe that shares your name that was surprising, interesting to you? No one? You go Googled your name and it was just, okay, yeah, there I am. There's my Facebook profile. That's it. You guys are not that as exciting as I was hoping for. <laughs> I need to draw this out a couple more minutes. But, uh, yeah, okay. It's a guy that played basketball at Oregon that has the same name as me. That's right. Okay. And he played football for Stanford. So there you go. There's a fun fact for you. <laughs> Man, just on the, is that the Pac-10? Is that, is that? Yep. Okay. Pac-12, okay. That's cool, that's cool. It's an athletic name, apparently. There you go. A professional poker player. You don't have the glasses on? See, that is interesting. There you go. Well, uh, I don't know the first time I, I Googled my name, but uh, I do remember the, the time that it struck me the most. This is about 20 years ago. Uh, we were in Okinawa, Japan, and, and I Googled my name. And, and even now, if you open your phone and Google Mark Oshman, you're going you're gonna to see some things. You're going to see two people, actually. Just that, that, that we, I don't share my name with a lot of people, but there, there's two that come up. And, and I got a picture of what you'll see. So we got Mark Oshman, and we got Mark Oshman. And Rick's like, oh, you look like twins. And I was like, ah, I don't know about that. But um, I've been fascinated with Mark Oshman since uh, about the year 2003, 2004, when I first discovered Mark Oshman, because uh, I, I was just shocked by some parallels. Uh, because uh, I, I was shocked that we are both followers of Jesus and open about that. I, I was shocked that at the time I was doing military ministry and uh, he's got his testimony online and uh, he became a Christian about the same time uh, in terms of age as me. I was 18, 19 when I came to faith in Christ. He joined the military and, and through a military ministry he uh, became a, a believer. Uh, also shocked because we're both pastors and missionaries. And, and these are like the two Mark Oshmans on, on the internet. So I was like, wow, this is interesting. But there's one really significant difference. Uh, this Mark Oshman grew up as an Orthodox Jew. Uh, he grew up in a family, uh, and, and you can go to jewishroots.com and read his testimony. He grew up in a family. Uh, all that means is in the world today, in, uh, in terms of Jews worldwide, Orthodox Jews make up less than about 10% of Jews, which just means they're, they're believing Jews. They, they pursue, they, they read the Torah, which is our Old Testament, and they pursue the 600 plus laws of the Old Testament to, to try to uh, uh, just live a righteous life. And, and in his testimony, he tells this story of growing up in, in, that, in that environment 
government and how um, he would, you know, observe the Sabbath and, and uh, eat kosher and not uh, wear clothes with mixed fabrics in it. I bet you didn't know that was one of the laws. Uh, but he, he would do all these things. But he would read passages like Deuteronomy 6, 5 that says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You shall lo- love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he said when he would read that, he would recognize that he, that, that he had fallen short. And he felt this angst in his soul. And he didn't know what to do with that. But then he'd read passages like Leviticus and, and uh, the, the, the sacrifices and the high priest and, and how God is holy and perfect and just and, and how uh, the sacrifice had to be perfect. And he realized he had nothing in his life to offer a holy God. And so it, it kind of plagued him. It kind of uh, stirred in his soul. Well, well, fast forward, he goes and joins the military. And in the military, uh, he's through boot camp and, and tech school. And, and one day, someone brings out a box of those uh, Gideon New Testaments, just these little, and just handing them out to whoever, uh, whoever will take one. And, and so this Orthodox Jew is like, sure, I'll take one. It says Psalms, that we have the Psalms and the New Testament. And so he, he takes it and he begins to read uh, the first gospel, Matthew. And Matthew is written to uh, Jewish from a Jewish perspective, trying to show the Messiah has come. And, and in reading it, he's, he's intrigued. He, he's seeing in Jesus the things that his heart has been longing for. He, he's seeing uh, someone that ha- does love the Lord as God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he sees Jesus as the, the perfect high priest that, that the world needs. And, and, and he's intrigued by that. He said several months later on, on the website of his testimony, he, he opens it this way. He says, Shalom Aleichem Hashem Yeshua Mahashayak. In, in the language of my ancestors, peace be unto all of you in the name of Jesus, the Messiah. I am saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. Well, he gets invited to this military religious retreat and there are uh, a couple Christian guys that come alongside him and and just begin to uh, tell him about Jesus and point him to Jesus. And I I thought of last week, Romans chapter 10, faith comes from hearing. And he says after several days of just asking and answering questions, he gives his life to Christ. He goes on to uh, do ministry, goes on to uh, do a, a Jewish ministry. He works for the International Board of Jewish Missions uh, and is making his aim to uh, make his, his people come to know and see and savor the Messiah. Now, I was, I was surprised uh, because in our day and age, uh, it's not often that Orthodox Jews come into uh, the faith. Uh, I worked as a financial advisor and I worked with an Orthodox Jewish woman once and, and she on her computer monitor always had a, a live webcam of the Western Wall in Jerusalem. And she would just stare at that. And that's all that's left of the temple from Jesus' day. And I asked her one day, I said, um, do, uh, do you think they're going to rebuild that? And she says, yes, I do. When Messiah comes. And I said, yeah, so you don't think Messiah's come? She said, no, I don't. And so that's just kind of the, the general default. So it was surprising to me to read about Mark Oshman, this Orthodox Jew, to come to faith. Now, what was surprising to me was actually the opposite in the first century to Paul's audience. What was surprising and, and, and really troubling to them was why Jews were not coming into uh, the faith by and large, why, why they weren't following the Messiah that had been promised. 
And in Romans chapters 9, 10, 11, that's what Paul's been dealing with, uh, with his, the, the, the Jewish minority in the church in Rome. You can take that off. We don't need to put me on there. All that. Uh, they're dealing with this church in, in Rome. And the question that they're, they're asking is, has God and his promises failed us? I mean, it seems like so few of the people that the promised Messiah was to come to were, were coming in. So, so has the word of God failed? And Paul's been emphatic. No, it has not. And in Romans chapter 9, he, he emphasized the sovereignty of God over salvation. In Romans chapter 10, he emphasized the responsibility of humanity to, to hear and respond. And for us that know Jesus to go and proclaim the gospel. But, but there's still this question, there's still this objection in the hearts and minds of the church. Paul, some of the promises, in fact, the central promise of the, the Old Testament, of the Torah, seems unconditional, not conditional. And if it's unconditional, and it seems like it's not happening, then God has broken his promise. And it was an important question for them, and it's an important question for all of us that call ourselves followers of Jesus. If there's any possibility that the promises that God has given to you and to me, that they actually won't happen, then what are we even doing? We're wasting our time. We have no security, and so Paul wants to deal with that in Romans chapter 11. Now, let me just say a couple things about Romans chapter 11. If if people are preaching through Romans, they, they often skip 9, 10, and 11. Uh, and if they're going to skip anything, they're going to skip 11 uh, because it is difficult. It is theologically dense material. Now, now the other option I saw, uh, for example, uh, John Piper, when he preached through Romans, uh, he spent four months in chapter 11. I'm not. I'm spending one week. And there's a reason for that. I think, I think, one, that, that you can miss the forest for the trees here. Uh, I think you can dig in so deeply that uh, you can start to forget and, and miss what, 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 what is trying to be communicated by Paul to the church in Rome. I think chapter 11 is essential. Again, Paul is writing to this small, fledgling little group of house churches under the emperor of Nero, and some of them are are Jewish, and some of them are Gentile. And if we understood just the the ethnic division there, it would would bring everything into light in our day. This is worse. And and the question was, was, is is the gospel going to be strong enough and powerful enough to keep Jew and Gentile together as one faith family? Or... Would they just break up and we'd have the church, first church split? We would have a Jewish church and we'd have a Gentile church. And Paul wants to lay the foundation for the rest of the book of Romans where he's going to plead with the the Christians to apply the gospel and pursue unity at all costs. Now, this is an important message in our day as well. Because the fact of the matter is we can all just go to other churches where people just believe exactly like we do, vote like we do, have the same morals as we do, and just think, oh, that's, that's healthy. But they couldn't do that in the first century. And, and we shouldn't do it now. It is actually good and right to be in an environment with people that you don't necessarily get along with. In fact, it's, it's part of how God sanctifies us and makes us more like Jesus. And so this is where Romans 11 becomes very essential for then and for now. And so because it's theological dense, theologically dense, I just want to show two things from this passage. 
And I'm going to tell you, I just want to show my cards up front and be as clear as possible. Two things that this passage, I think, was true then, always, and now. And the first one is that God's faithfulness is greater than our faithlessness. God's faithfulness is greater than our faithlessness. And the second one is that God keeps his promises in surprising and mysterious ways. He's God. We're not. He's going to surprise the church. He's going to surprise us how he is keeping his promises. So with that, let's begin to uh, look at this question. Is God going to keep his promises? Look at verse 1 of chapter 11. Listen carefully. This is God's word. It says, Paul says, I asked then, has God rejected his people? By no means. He says, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. So he points to himself, but, but notice how he points to himself. He points to his own Jewishness. So he's like, clearly I'm Jewish and I've come to embrace the Messiah. But, but he points to all the way back to Abraham. And it's very important that he does that because he wants to show that the, the, the promise to the people of God is found in Genesis chapter 12. But not just to the people of God, to all people. And so I'll put it on the screen here, but let me just read the first few verses of Genesis 12. This is really a cornerstone passage for the entire Bible. This is what it says in, in the calling of Abram in chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, Israelites, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So there's two great promises that that are built into this passage. One, I will make make your name great. I will bless you, Abraham. And then at the end, and through you, all the Gentiles, all the nations will be blessed. And how how, how do I know this is an unconditional promise? Well, you'd have to flip over to Genesis chapter 15 for that. When they actually make the covenant, God brings Abram out. He says, look up into the sky and see all the stars of the sky. That's what your descendants are going to be like. At this point, he had no children, but he says, that's what's going to happen. And just to prove that, we're going to make a covenant. And in those days, in the ancient Near East, when you wanted to make a covenant, and it was very, very serious, you would sign up, make the agreement, like we would sign it, get it notarized. No, they would bring in animals and they would sacrifice uh, goats and bulls and, and, and birds and, and they, would, they would cut them up, slice their throat and, and the blood would flow and then they would uh, take the parts of the animals, cut in half and they would put one on each side and, and there would just be this pathway of blood. And when it was time to make the covenant, they would, they would say, this is what we're going to do. You agree to it. I agree to it. They'd grab hands and they'd walk through and their robes and their feet would be covered in blood. And what they were saying was the seriousness of this covenant is if, if either of us were to break this covenant, may what happened to these animals happen to us. Okay? So you're tracking with me so far? All right. So... Uh, That's what happens in Genesis chapter 15. God says, Abram, come bring all the animals. He's like, oh, I understand what's going on. We're making a covenant. Sacrifice animals. He does. Spread them on the side. He does. There's a pathway of blood. But before Abram walks down the path, it says God put him into a deep, deep sleep. Puts him asleep. 
And in this kind of bizarre scene in Genesis 15, there's this pot and there's this, there's this torch. It, it is a symbolic uh, view of God takes the covenant walk. God walks between the pieces. What's going on there? God is saying, even if Abraham is unfaithful and his descendants and all people are unfaithful, I'm making an unconditional covenant. What, what happened to these animals will happen to me in this thing. And so uh, the last few weeks we've talked about understanding our place in the grand story of God, that there's creation, there's fall, there's uh, promise, there's redemption, there's mission, there's new creation. But over all that, or, or running through this, the central cord over all that is God's faithfulness. And, and from the beginning to the end, this is what holds it all together. God was faithful in creating. God was faithful in the garden when, when sin entered in. He wasn't done. He had a plan. God is faithful in the promises and the prophets and Israel's history uh, in Egypt and in the wilderness and in, in the kings and in the pro- prophets. For example, Jonah. Jonah is unfaithful, but God is faithful and working through him. Or Hosea. God comes to Hosea and he says, I want to use your life as a visual illustration of my faithfulness in spite of my people's faithlessness. He says, Hosea, I want you to marry a prostitute. Her name is Gomer. She, she has a, a bad background and when you marry her, she's going, to, she's going to cheat on you. But I want you to love her. And so he goes and marries Gomer and doesn't take long before she steps out and, and begins to prostitute herself out. And her life goes from bad to worse. She eventually gets sold as a slave and God comes to Hosea and says, I want you to now go purchase her back off the slave block and love her. And he does. He says, this is the picture of God's faithfulness in spite of our unfaithfulness. Get to Jesus. That is faithfulness incarnate. He, he left heaven in, in glory and came and stepped and lived among us. And even in that, those moments, we were unfaithful to him. We sent him to the cross. He is torn in two because that's what the covenant demanded. And his faithfulness covered our unfaithfulness. But even now, when we find ourselves in, in the stage of redemption history on mission, he is faithful. What does he say in the Great Commission? I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. He sends his spirit. He doesn't just say, hopefully you tell everybody about me. Hopefully this mission succeeds. He says, no, you're going to be empowered by my spirit. I will faithful, even if, even if my church, even if Redemption Parker is faithless, I will make my name great in the nations. But he invites us into it. His faithfulness is greater than our unfaithfulness. And that will bring us all the way to new creation. Well, Paul mentions Abraham, but he mentions himself. And he mentions something else as as evidence that God is faithful. Verse 2. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scriptures says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel. Elijah is found in, this story is found in 1 Kings 19. Elijah is this powerful prophet of God, does some amazing things. But, but at a certain point, uh, he, he, he hits spiritual depression. He has a pity party for himself. He, he thinks that he's the only one. He thinks that, uh, that no one else is faithful. He's the only one on God's side and he's crying out to God. And then look what it says. Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left. And they seek my life. 
But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. He just points out, and what we learn from this is God is always doing more than we can see. God is doing more in your life than you can see. He's doing 10,000 things in your life right now, and he might reveal two or three of them. And this is true of his people. This is true of his plan. He's always doing more than we can see, and his the more is fueled by his faithfulness. Well, what does that faithfulness look like? It looks like grace and mercy. Look at verse 5. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace, right? So, so you get it, right? You get grace and mercy for faithless people. So, so people like Paul got grace and mercy from God as he was persecuting the church. People like you and me, you were unfaithful to God and yet he gave you grace and mercy if you're in Christ. This is how his faithfulness is worked out. So he first points out like God always has a remnant to this day. Part of that remnant is Mark, my boy Mark Oshman. He's part of the remnant and he's working to uh, be a faithful tool in that remnant as he proclaims the gospel of grace. But it, still, there is this question, okay, is that all we get? Is that how history is going to unfold? The, the Gentiles are mostly going to make up the church, and there's going to be this small remnant of Jews. Well, he goes on, and he shows that's not the case. So God's faithfulness is greater than our unfaithfulness. And then the second point, God, God's plan is surprising and mysterious. Look at verse 11. So I asked then, did they, the Israelites, stumble in order that they might fall? What, what Paul is saying here is at the end of chapter 9, remember it talks about they were pursuing self-righteousness. They were trying to make their own way to God. And as such, when Jesus came, they weren't looking for grace and mercy. So when he came, they stumbled over him. He is the cornerstone that they stumbled over. But, but the question is, is that stumbling permanent? Is it eternal? And Paul says emphatically, no, it is not eternal. God keeps his promises in mysterious, in surprising and mysterious ways. He says, by no means. Rather, through their, the Israelites' trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. We'll talk about that in a second. It says, now, if their trespass means riches for the world... And if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will the, their full inclusion mean? So he, he first hints here that God is not done with Israel. God is not done with ethnic Israel. But, but he, here's what he say. When Israel stumbled over the Messiah and didn't embrace him as a whole, it was part of God's mysterious plan. In, in their not embracing him, it actually opened up the, the doorways for the nations to come in. Jesus said this would happen. Matthew chapter 22, Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like a, a wedding banquet. And the king sends out, uh, sends out invitations and, and invites all the chosen people and they say, we're busy. Or they ignore him. He sends out another messenger say, no, come in. Come into the party. Come into the banquet. And they persecute and kill these messengers. So finally the king says, well, go out and invite everybody in. If they don't want it, everyone else can come in. Jesus said this would happen. 
In fact, in the book of Acts, this is what we see happening. Uh, what happens when, when Paul goes on mission to Antioch in, in, in Roman Acts 13? He goes to the synagogue, always to the synagogue first. Paul understood that the gospel needed to come to the Jewish people first. And some, the remnant chosen by grace, would enter in into that moment. But the vast majority rejected and said no. And so Paul would always turn to the Gentiles and they would flood in, which is amazing that they would embrace the Jewish Messiah. It happens in Corinth as well. In Acts chapter 18, he he proclaims the gospel. The Jews, some come in, but many don't. And so then he goes next door to the synagogue to name of to the guy's his house was named Justice, and and he is uh, proclaiming the gospel. And the Gentiles are coming in in Corinth. And it was from Corinth that he wrote the book of Romans. But by the end of the book of Acts, which is after what we read, uh, Paul is under house arrest. He's been brought to Rome in Acts chapter 28, the very last paragraph of the book of Acts. And he's in house arrest in, in Rome. And what does Paul do? He's written this church a letter, but what does he do? He first calls all the Jewish leaders to come and hear the gospel. And they come, and a few of them come in. And the vast majority don't. And the last words Paul says in the book of Acts is, well, then it'll go to the Gentiles. They will listen. And and this is what what has happened. This is what happened. This is part of God's mysterious plan. It's, It's their rejection that is bringing the Gentiles in. And he says, so as to make Israel jealous. There's this there's this theme that in some way, shape or form that the people that have the right to the promises of God are going to see people that had no right to the promises of God embrace the promises and a godly jealousy, a godly envy is going to be stirred at some point in their hearts and their minds and they're going to come into the kingdom. We don't know how. We don't know specifics and people do some really weird things with Romans chapter 11 but, but uh, that's not my point today. Let's look at verse 17. He, he uses this kind of horticultural uh, illustration of how this looks in the kingdom of God. He says, but if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, that's Gentiles, a wild olive shoot, we, didn't, we weren't part of the original tree and the original tree was the blessing to Abraham and all that would come through him, were grafted in among others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches." Again, uh, we shouldn't be prideful that, that we have experienced the, the blessings of God that were meant for the people of God, Israel. We, we don't belong, but God in his grace grafted us in. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith, so do not become proud, but fear. So there's a a warning here to Gentiles. Don't be proud. Don't lord it over the Jews that you somehow have found your way into the kingdom. It's all by grace. Verse 21. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note the kindness and severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but kindness, God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. What does it mean to continue in his kindness? Well, it's what Paul's been saying the whole book. Continue to uh, pursue God by grace through faith. Don't think that 
you can earn anything from God. Don't think that you can somehow God, make God more pleased with you by your performance. Continue in his kindness. Rest in his grace. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Verse 23. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut, off, cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? So he, he's starting to say, God's not done. So don't be prideful, Gentiles. God's not done with the Israelites. And how does that look? The plan culminates for fullness of, fullness of the Gentiles and fullness of the Jews. Look at verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this, my, this mystery, brothers. Meaning we're not going to, at present, be able to fully understand all things. We can't predict the future. Just know that God is faithful. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. What, what does the fullness of the Gentiles look like? Well, Revelation 5 and Revelation 7 tells us that there is going to be people from every tribe, tongue, and nation that will gather before the throne of God, rescued and redeemed by the Lamb of God. That's what the fullness of the Gentiles look like. Verse 26, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. Now, this is the controversial verse of Romans eleven twenty-six. Some would take this to mean, well, there's a kind of universalism for all Jewish people. Others take it to mean, well, there must be two covenants. There must be a covenant for Gentiles, and that is by Jesus, but through grace, through faith, and an unconditional covenant strictly for Israelites, and they get in no matter what. That's not what Paul is teaching here. Paul has been very clear uh, in the gospel from Romans chapter 1. The gospel is first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. The only way anyone ever, regardless of ethnicity, comes into the kingdom is by grace through faith in Jesus. So when he says all Israel will be saved, he doesn't mean every single ethnic Jewish person who has ever lived will be saved. He's already made that clear in Romans chapter 4, Romans chapter 9. It is by grace through faith. But he says, but what I think he's pointing at is that a day is coming when a revival will break out among the Jewish people. It'll be surprising. It, it, it may be shocking. But that's been true all the time when God is on the move among people groups. Right now, for example, Iranians are coming into the church in droves out of their Muslim background. We don't know why. It's happening in Europe. It's happening in Iran. It's happening in America. We don't know why. Right now, in Brazil, People are flooding into the church and coming to know Jesus. We don't know why. In sub-Saharan Africa, it's happening. We thought when China locked down and all the missionaries were going to be kicked out, that was the end for the church. It didn't happen. God is always doing in mysterious ways things, 10,000 things that we don't know about in the moment. And I believe a day is coming when Israel will be stirred to come by grace through faith, to stop striving and embrace their Messiah. I don't know how all that will look like. I don't think Romans 11 tells us how that will look like. But let's drop down to verse 30. 
For, for just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that, disobedient in order, in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. So this is raising the question, why would God do it this way? Why, why would God... Why would God's plan of salvation for the world look like this? And the answer is to shut the mouth of human pride. To shut our mouth. The answer is mercy. You don't deserve this. There's a a tendency in our hearts as as Gentiles, for example, to lord it over those that don't know or lord it over the Jews. uh, uh, And and God is saying, no, you, you didn't. You didn't earn this. You didn't deserve this. This was mercy. Mercy. There's a tendency, uh, there was a tendency in the Israelites to lord it over the Gentiles and take their privileged position with God and, and somehow think that they had deserved this. But you look at Abraham, Abraham, there was nothing special in Abram. There was nothing special in the Israelite people's hearts and minds and morality, but it was all mercy. And if it's all mercy, there's no boasting. There's only unity and peace and, and grace. And so uh, if that's the case, if God keeps his promises in surprising and mysterious ways, what can we here at Redemption Parker take away in 2022 from this? Well, I have five things I think this chapter wants us to uh, look at. Romans 11 is meant to fuel our humility. First and foremost, it's meant to fuel our humility. Notice, notice what, what Paul has said to this church that it's just on a razor-thin edge about breaking up over ethnic division. He's saying, Gentiles, you're dependent on the Jews. Your blessings come through the Jews. Your branch, the tree that you get your life from, is a Jewish tree. So Gentiles, don't be prideful. And he says to the, to the Jewish people, he says, uh, you're going to be provoked by jealousy, by them receiving the gifts that you deserve. You're dependent on them for the Jews to come back in. There's a codependence here that God has built into his plan. I, I said it was thick. It's, it's difficult to understand, but it should cause us humility. Because there's something in us that sometimes just believes that we are somehow more special than other people that haven't come to faith in Jesus. And Romans 11 is here to tell you, no, you're not. You have no ground for boasting. You weren't more spiritually aware. You weren't more uh, attuned. You weren't more moral. There was nothing in you except for the grace and mercy of God alone that brought you into the kingdom of God. So there should be humility. And this should cause us not to despair. John Newton, who was a slave trader and eventually came to Christ and wrote that hymn, Amazing Grace, says this, I have never despaired of anyone's salvation ever since God saved me. It's like, look, if God can save me, I'm going to keep praying for my friends, my family, and my neighborhood because God can save anybody if he can save me. Do you feel that about yourself? Or you're like, no, I was a pretty good guy. I don't know if God can save those people then you don't understand the gospel. You don't understand what Paul is saying. If he can save you, he can save anybody. Trust me. If he can get Mark Oshman, you're all good. And so is everyone else. So it should fuel our humility. Secondly, out of that, it should fuel our unity. Our unity. This is what Paul is setting up the rest of the book of Romans. He wants them to live the gospel together. Is the gospel powerful enough to unify his church? 
Sadly, the answer in much of the church today is no. We're just going to go off and do with people that we like, that, that, that vote like us or whatever the case may be or look like us. But Paul is saying the gospel is strong enough to hold us together in unity. It is meant to fuel our gratitude, our gratitude. The, the right response to a gift is gratitude. Thank you. And the gift that we receive, see that we receive and the Jewish people will receive in Romans 11 is mercy and grace. It is a gift and it's everywhere. So gratitude should be everywhere. It should be the, the, the default posture of our hearts. Like, like the gospel alone should fuel our gratitude in our marriages, in our workplace, in our neighborhood. Like, like we should just be thankful people because of the gospel. Romans 11 is meant to fuel our anticipation. So God's plan is unfolding. It's mysterious. It's glorious. He's not going to tell us all right now, but, but we should long for him to continue to unfold his plan in our day. Long for us to be a part of the, the people from every tribe, tongue, and nation gathering before the throne. We should pray for our church planners that are working to bring in the fullness of the Gentiles into the kingdom so that the, the doors will be open again for the Jews. We should be praying for my boy Mark Oshman, who is sharing the gospel daily with the Jewish people. Because this is God's plan. It's unfolding. He's inviting us to be a part of it. And then finally, all of this, this huge picture view of God and all the mystery and the wisdom and all that he has in it should fuel our worship. Should fuel our worship. In fact, this is what Paul does at the end of Romans 11. He gives the great doxology, which just means two Two words, doxa, praise, logos, word. He gives the great praise word of the New Testament. After 11 chapters of unpacking the gospel of grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone, and now showing the mystery of God's sovereign plan being worked out throughout history, he stops and he worships. And this is the right and good response for the people of God. Look at what Paul says. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are his ways. He's just saying, God is bigger than my mind and my heart can fathom or imagine. He is worthy of all worship. 34, for who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has, given, who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? No one. And he just concludes this section before applying the gospel for the rest of Romans, he concludes it like this. For from this God, from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever and ever. Amen. Having a God that is bigger than your ability to fathom should fuel your worship. Having a God that deals with us in grace and mercy, should fuel your worship. Having a God whose faithfulness is greater than your unfaithfulness should fuel your worship. Having a God who works out his plan in mysterious and surprising ways should fuel our worship as we're on mission with him. To that end, let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word to us this morning. Lord, I pray that you'd be bigger and bigger in our hearts and minds so that our worship would get bigger and louder and fuel our life 
and feel our unity and our humility and our anticipation and all the things that you're doing in and through our, us as families and as a faith family. Make much of Jesus in our lives and our heart. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.